0: Morning, everyone. Hope you had a wonderful Christmas with your loved ones. What time did yours wake up?
1: Uh too early, but I didn't let them out of the room. <laughs> and that's the key thing: controlling when they actually get to the tree is critical.
0: 3:30 a.m. over here. We need to learn that control. So it's normal, it was a normal. It was a normal week. Normal week. That's so true. It is Tuesday, December the 26th, and we're glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly. This news breaking overnight: the U.S. launching targeted airstrikes in Iraq. The operation in response to an attack by an Iranian-backed militant group that injured U.S. troops. We'll take you live to the White House with the details.
1: Also new overnight, Ukraine reportedly strikes a Russian warship docked in Crimea. Cameras capturing a massive blast. You can see it right there near the site. Plus, Alexei Navalny's first message since his arrival at a penal colony in Siberia. What the top opposition leader to Russian President Vladimir Putin is saying this morning.
0: And Donald Trump's very bitter Christmas message, how the frontrunner for the Republican nomination last out, lashed out against his political rivals and what it says about his campaign. CNN This Morning starts right now. We do begin this morning with tension flaring in the Middle East overnight. President Biden ordering retaliatory retaliatory airstrikes against Iranian-backed militant group Kataib Hezbollah. It comes after the group took credit for a one-way drone attack that wounded three U.S. troops in Northern Iraq. The strike came less than 13 hours after the attack on those U.S. troops. All of this comes on the heels of a separate incident in which Israeli airstrikes in Syria killed a high-ranking Iranian military advisor, now Iranian officials, vowing To revenge for the killing.
1: These dangerous back and forth strikes are playing out as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the Israeli military is, quote, intensifying operations inside Gaza and that the war is far from over. We're going to speak to CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger in a moment, but let's get started with Priscilla Alvarez, who's live for us on the North Lawn of the White House. Priscilla, what more are you learning about these strikes directed by President Biden?
2: Well, these strikes followed earlier strikes in the day that wounded three Americans in northern Iraq, one of whom, according to the White House, is in critical condition. Now, the president was immediately briefed following that strike. And later in the day, this was yesterday, Defense Secretary Alston presented the president options. And that is when the president ordered the strike. Now, according to a statement from the White House, they said, quote, during that call, the president directed his strikes against three locations utilized by Gataib Hezbollah and affiliated groups focused specifically on unmanned aerial drone activities. The statement goes on to say that the president places no higher priority than the protection of American personnel serving in harm's way. The United States will act at a time and in a manner of our choosing should the attacks continue. Now, U.S. Central Command has since said that earlier assessments show that they likely killed a number of militants and that there are no indications of civilian casualties at this point. The defense secretary going on to note that this was, quote, necessary and proportionate.
0: Priscilla, today we're going to see Ron Dermer, who's very close to Benjamin Netanyahu meeting with Biden advisors. This comes a day after Netanyahu was meeting with Israeli troops in Gaza, and notably a day after the prime minister said a long fight that is not close to ending. It just shows how different the view of what the future is from the Netanyahu government and the Biden government. What can we expect from that meeting today?
2: And it also shows how critical a time this is as the U.S., pushes Israel to move away from that high intensity war. So as you mentioned, Ron Dermer is a close confidant of Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's also a member of the war cabinet and previously served as Israel's ambassador to the US. Now, according to a source who told our Oren Lieberman that he's going to be in Washington meeting with White House officials and State Department officials. Again, a big topic going into this is what the war looks like in the weeks and months to come. The U.S. wants to see a more targeted, precise strategy from Israel to contain innocent civilian casualties. And that is what Israel has assured the U.S. that it will do. But in addition to that, it's what does a timeline look like? Up until this point, U.S. officials have not been able to define what that timeline is. So this will be a topic of discussion. As again, the president has previously warned that support will wane for Israel if they do not contain this uh, more. Priscilla Alvarez with the Reporting at the White House. Thanks very much.
1: And joining us now, CNN political and national security analyst the New York Times, White House and national security correspondent David Sanger. David, we appreciate your time Uh, this morning. I want to start with the strikes that were ordered by President Biden last night. We have seen the back and forth with Iranian proxies over the course of the last several weeks. This time, there are not just two wounded U.S. soldiers, but there's also a third that is uh, viewed as in critical condition. Does that change the calculation for the administration here?
3: Well, oh, I think it does, Phil, and I think you saw that in the way the president reacted so quickly. You know, Until now, the White House has pretty much tolerated these strikes as long as no one got hurt. And there was a lot of criticism uh, of him, particularly from Republicans, who were saying he wasn't establishing enough deterrence here. Uh, but he wanted a proportionate response, and he knew any response was likely to kill Iranians, and that probably is uh, uh, what happened uh, here or Hezbollah members. We don't know yet what the, what the full effects were of, of the counter-strike. But it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. First, it happened in Iraq, this, uh, this counter-strike, and the uh, Biden administration has been trying very hard not to destabilize uh, the al-Sudani uh, government in, in Iraq. I think the second reason that it's um, significant is the president has been quite concerned about escalation with Iran, Mm -hmm. and so he's been trying to balance that, uh, but the Iranians, by continuing uh, to order up these strikes, and we believe that these are at least coordinated uh, by Iran, uh, is making that harder and harder to do. I think the next big issue for the president is going to be whether or not to strike inside Iran or at those who are making the decisions. uh, He's going to be very hesitant to do that, I I suspect.
0: But David, that is a central question, right? Because Phil talks about these ongoing strikes that have happened in the region, whether it's Houthi rebels um, in Yemen, whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's this group, Kataib, Hezbollah in Iraq. It's all backed by Iran. What is your reporting on how the White House and the Pentagon are weighing that option now about do you go after the Iranian regime in Iran?
3: So the Pentagon's worked up a number of options on this, no surprise, but uh, it I don't think from everything I can tell it has not gone directly to the president yet. And I think in part that's because of a recognition that uh, the president considers escalation with Iran to be exactly what he's trying to avoid right now, mm-hmm. a widening of this war in the Middle East beyond Gaza. Uh, he's been cautious in Lebanon, where uh, Iran is running Hezbollah troops, as you noted, Poppy. Uh, he's been cautious with the Houthis, uh, where he does not want to uh, ruin what has been a, a bit of a ceasefire. It's lasted for uh, quite successfully for a while now between uh, the Saudis uh, and the Houthis. So, uh, you know, it's pretty delicate Mideast politics. But at some point, you have to think that the pressure on him to strike at those who may be ordering this within the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is gonna be pretty high.
1: David, how does this all track with what officials are saying was an Israeli strike that took out an IRGC officer
3: in Syria over the weekend? Not just any IRGC officer, but General Mousavi who um, had been very close to um, uh, a IRGC commander, uh, Soleimani, uh, who was killed in 2020 in a strike that former President uh, Trump ordered. Uh, It was January of 2020, and and you may recall there was an American drone strike that killed him. Uh, Mousavi was uh, basically the coordinator uh, in Syria for uh, the um, Iranian-backed uh, militias that are there. And uh, so the Israeli strike was a, was a big deal there. Um, all of this, you've got to think, just adds up to uh, more and more and more uh, pressure on the administration to, uh, to deal with Iran, and the Iranians trying to decide how to calibrate their strike back. My guess is, Phil, that the Iranians are not eager to get into a direct conflict with the U.S. right now, but they sure are pushing the envelope.
0: Certainly. Just quickly, your take on what happens today when Ron Dermer meets with Biden administration officials a day after Netanyahu went into Gaza for the second time since this conflict began.
3: Well, Poppy, there's no one closer to Netanyahu than than Ron Dermer, who, of course, was the ambassador to the United States. And as you mentioned earlier, Jessica mentioned, is a member of the War Cabinet. I think he's going to be making a very forceful case for why Israel's got to keep the pressure up on Gaza and keep this kind of bombing going. The administration really told the Israelis this has got to stop pretty soon. And I think what, in their minds, soon meant by the new year, only a week away. Um, it did not sound from listening to Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday like that's his schedule. And uh, this is gonna soon collide with that $14 billion in additional aid that the administration wants to give to Israel. And the question will come up, what conditions should be put on that aid?
1: All right, David Singer, you're allowed to go get coffee, but you can't go too far. <laughs> We're gonna talk to you again in a couple minutes. Stay with us.
0: Meantime, Donald Trump blasted politicians and prosecutors in a Christmas post. It was anything but cheerful, the familiar attack lines and how they're playing out on the campaign trail. And
1: the Colorado judges who ruled Trump was constitutionally ineligible now face online threats. What's being done to protect them? That's next. New this morning, the FBI is acknowledging it's working with local law enforcement investigating threats against judges on the Colorado Supreme Court. This sometimes violent rhetoric follows the court's 4-3 to ruling that Trump was constitutionally ineligible to appear on the state's Republican primary ballot. This is a result of the insurrectionist ban included in the 14th Amendment. Now, analysis shared with CNN shows an uptick in the heated online language about those four judges who voted to disqualify Trump. While there are no known threats at this time, there are concerns a lone actor or small group may act out. Trump's team has called the ruling undemocratic, and his lawyers have vowed to file an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: Those threats come after Donald Trump shared an insulting Christmas message to some politicians and prosecutors. You can see some of it. We'll pull it up here for you. Some of the attacks. On, there's a lot right there on Truth Social. Writing things like deranged prosecutor Jack Smith or the unselect January 6th committee. He went on to call Nancy Pelosi crazy and President Joe Biden crooked. Joining us now, former Republican strategist and pollster uh, Lee Carter, CNN political commentator Jamal Simmons, and politics reporter for Semaphore Shelby Talcott. Good Morning, guys. Good, morning, Good to have everybody. you here. Um, one thing that I think is really striking is some of the language that Trump is using is not hurting him in Iowa among uh, Republican voters. In fact, this Des Moines Register poll shows that when he says things like, you know, immigrants are poisoning the blood of America or the radical left thugs are like vermin, p- people are saying it's more makes them more likely to support him. Forty-two percent say it's more likely to support him in Iowa.
4: Yeah, a lot of the voters that I talk to on the ground have the mentality that, A, this is just sort of something you have to deal with when Donald Trump is involved, and B, they view this rhetoric as that fighter mentality that we talked about last week. And it's like, it's been really interesting because this rhetoric isn't taken like a lot of the media is taking it. it. It's just taken as, this guy is a fighter, he's using this language because he cares about us. And on the flip side... Uh, you've seen Trump's opponents really use these examples as reasons not to vote for him. They cite the chaos and the drama surrounding Donald Trump. And I've also heard voters on the ground in Iowa say, well, you know, I wish he would just stop tweeting as much and just stop using social media. And so there is this frustration. But it's not registering enough in the polls. It's not convincing voters enough to not vote for him.
1: Lead to that point, why? Because I think when you when you listen to Nikki Haley talking constantly about right. we can't have the chaos, you listen to, mm-hmm. Desantis. I'm, I'm Trump policies without the chaos. Everybody thought going into this campaign season that, that that was a pretty effective message. Right. It doesn't seem to be working though.
5: Yeah, it's not what you say that matters. It's what people hear. And so what I what I um what I see right now in the electorate, and I really think it's an important point you made two-thirds of Americans are looking for a fighter. They want someone who's going to say that, that it's going to fight back to a system that seems to be working against them. And there's a particular uh, sentiment among Republican voters who support Trump that the government doesn't work for them, that it works for the elite, for the few, and not for people not like them. So when he does this, it actually energizes them. They don't hear it the same way everybody else does. Everybody else is hearing what he's saying as a threat to democracy, as maybe he's going to be an autocrat dictator, all of those kinds of things. And the more that people call him a dictator, an autocrat, the more the Republicans dig their heels in and say, we're going to support this guy because we want somebody who's going to fight for us and nobody else will. And so despite the fact there are those voters out there who say that they want Trump without the chaos, those people are already supporting people like Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. but the people who support Trump solidly, they want it, they love it, they live for it, and it's hard to understand if you're not part of that audience. Part,
0: uh, just assuming a hypothetical matchup between, in a general, between Biden and Trump, this reporting from the New York Times recently that Democrats in some key states are really worried about Biden being a drag on key groups of voters. So they talk about Arizona, they talk about Michigan, where Biden's pulling 15 points behind the Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer. And then they talk about a state like Georgia, where Brian Kemp is taking a lot of credit for. Things, uh, investments from the infrastructure bill, et cetera. But in Michigan, for example, they talk about how Biden is losing ground, particularly among black and Arab American voters. And having worked in the Biden White House, you also have a read on how he is doing, particularly and what he needs to do with black voters.
6: I do. And I'm from Michigan. And so I yeah. just tell you, uh, he has a problem. The president has a problem in many of these states. Young African-Americans, also uh, some Muslim-Americans in Arab Americans who do feel like um, the administration's too, leaning too far in the direction of Bibi Netanyahu, right? And so maybe there's a way to pull back from the Israeli government, uh, clutch the, the, the hug to, so much, and to be able to sort of talk about the Israeli pain of October 7th and then also the Gaza pain that's happened since then. And so there are people who are worried about that. Um, candidates should be concerned, about running with anybody at the top of the ticket who's performing in terms of the polls the way they are right now, every candidate should be. The problem is candidates always think, the lesson of this is I need to find my own voice, be my own self, separate myself from the top of the ticket, and it 99% never works, <laughs> right? Because the way politics works right now, it's, it's like, it's too big, the, the messages out of the White House are too strong, you've gotta figure out how to run with the candidate that you're running with, define yourself, of course, but you're going to be running with that president. Running against the president just means that the Democratic Party is shooting at each other um, and not running together on a ticket where everybody is making the same message and making the same call on voters. And that is the way, the only way, that I think any of them have a chance to win. Shelby, you've got reporting
1: on how Trump's team is looking at kind of the softness in the coalitions, particularly mm-hmm. among black voters, among younger voters, and seeing if there's opportunities. If there are places they can take advantage of it.
4: Yeah. Do they really think that there are right now? They absolutely do. And they believe it's not just getting these groups of voters to not turn out for Joe Biden, which would certainly help Donald Trump. They also believe that they can sway a number of people who voted for Biden last time around, but who have become disillusioned with the Biden administration, are frustrated with the economy, are frustrated with gas prices, uh, what have you. That's what Trump's team is targeting. And they're doing it in really interesting ways, particularly with young voters Uh, One of the ways they're doing it is by having some of these uh, more non-traditional like rappers and celebrities come out in support of Donald Trump. He goes to WWE events. He's been to a lot of football games. We saw him throwing a football around at one of the Iowa State fraternity. Um, These are all efforts to get, A, voters who are frustrated with Biden, but also new voters who aren't as political um, into the mix. And... You know, we've seen in some ways in the polls so far that it, it's effective at this point. Yeah. It's still early on, but we've seen some movement.
6: And the Democratic message, I would say this, Democratic message has to be more aspirational. It really does have to talk, particularly young male voters, it's got to talk about the chance, not just what to... What should they say? Hold it up. they got to talk about like how you make money, right? How do businesses grow? How do people have a chance to be able to buy a nicer house and send their kids to school? Like Those are the things that really still animate voters, particularly sure. with male voters. and They don't want the government to solve the problems for them. They just want the government to give them a shot to solve the problems for themselves. And too often, Democrats make the government and the Democratic politicians to hear over in the story and not the individual voter. I
5: do think though, in addition to the aspirational message, they have to get back in touch with the voters. So most people are saying they feel like the economy is in ruins. A lot of people are saying that I've never felt worse about the future of our country. And so when you have all of that happening and you have an administration that's saying things have never been better, you feel completely out of touch.
0: Disconnected.
5: Totally disconnected. And younger people, I think, are really saying, I need somebody who gets my pain, who gets how angry I am and gets how frustrated I am. And you can't just tell me that things have never been better. And I think that is one of the biggest problems, if this administration would just get their arms around how people are feeling and feel like they have their pulse on that. It could really change things. But right now they feel completely
4: out of touch. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of people peel off.
6: I'd say we're turning the corner. We shouldn't go back. The, right. The
4: <laughs> Bidenomics message is not registering on the ground when you talk to voters. And it's actually in some ways I was think? talking to a lot of Hispanic yeah. uh, leaders. In some ways it's turning them off even mm-hmm. more because they feel really frustrated that the Biden administration is pushing this when they're not seeing that reality on the ground.
0: I was going to ask you, what do voters say to you when you ask them about Bidenomics, meaning how do they even define it? What does it even mean to them?
4: There's been a struggle to define it, and I think that's part of the message, uh, part of the problem. There's been a struggle to define it, but also when they do hear Bidenomics, they just hear, well, this is something that the White House is touting as an accomplishment when it comes to the economy, and we're not feeling that when we go pick up our groceries and we go to the gas station. And
5: I also think it's become a little bit of a joke. People say Bidenomics actually is inflation and runaway prices. So I think it's almost being used against them by a lot of people who hear it and say, when I hear Bidenomics, I hear things are worse for me. And people keep saying that we're turning the corner and yet prices are still up. Even if things are getting better, you still have people paying $11 for a box of cereal and things are saying, people are saying, that's not working for me.
6: The Gas prices are going down, wages are going up. The housing. economy is doing well.
0: Housing is still very. Housing is still very expensive. It's a still big
6: expensive. The cost it? Of money. People, you know, credit card rates are still expensive. Yeah. That's in the Fed's job, not the president's job. Yeah. So there are there are some challenges out there, but I do think the Biden administration is placing the bet. A lot of money is going to be spent in terms of infrastructure spending around the country. Wages are going up. Prices are coming down.
0: Let's see if that can happen fast enough. $11 cereal. I thought six bucks was a lot more yeah. cereal 11
6: bucks. <laughs> You're here here. here. here.
0: Thank you <laughs> very much.
1: Well, new this morning, the top opposition leader to Vladimir Putin issues his first message from a remote Siberian prison. How Alexei Navalny says he's, do- says how he's doing and what he's revealing about his weeks long ordeal. Stay with us.
0: More CNN this morning to come after the break.
8: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo.
9: It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach.
8: It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back. New this morning, Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny issuing his first message from the remote Siberian prison that he was transferred to. He tells supporters that he is fine. His lawyer visited uh, him on Monday at a prison known as Polar Wolf. It is in the Russian Arctic. You see it right there, 1,200 miles northeast of Moscow. Navalny has been missing since December 11th, just days after Russian President Vladimir Putin announced his re-election plans. Navalny sent out a series of tweets. One of them reads, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm Totally relieved that I finally made it. Nada Bashir joins us live from London with more. When I saw the news break, I was first relieved, right, that he's okay. People were wondering where he was. But what do we know about where he is now being held?
10: Well, look, Poppy, the conditions at the Polar Wolf Penal Colony are known to be harsh. And, of course, while we have now heard directly from Navalny after two weeks of no contact between his legal team and the Kremlin critic, and while that has certainly come as a moment of relief for many, uh, this is a huge moment of also concern considering the conditions that are said to be inside that penal Colin, as you mentioned, we have heard from Navalny. He shared those updates via his aides, who posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, this morning. He spoke of his... Relief after what he described to be an exhausting 20 day journey to get to this remote penal colony in the northwestern Siberian region of Kharp. He also spoke uh, of seeing what he described to be like a movie uh, scene of a convoy, including uh, soldiers, security forces with machine guns. But again, he said he is doing well, that he had been able to meet and speak with his lawyer, and he thanked supporters. For their concern. But again, there is concern amongst his closest supporters, including the director of his anti corruption foundation. He shared an update yesterday upon the news that Navalny had been located, issuing this statement regarding the penal colony saying the conditions there are harsh with a special regime in the permafrost zone. It is very difficult to get there and there are no letter delivery systems. There is also reporting in local government media in Siberia regarding the more general conditions in this Polar Wolf penal colony, saying that the focus there is on re-education through occupational therapy. Navalny, of course, a key Kremlin critic, he was sentenced to 19 years in prison. In back in August on charges relating to extremes. But, of course, these are charges that he denies. His legal team believe these are politically motivated charges.
1: All right, Nada Bashir with the update. Thank you. Well, George Santos, Bob Menendez, Kevin McCarthy, you could say they've all had years they'd like to forget how political chaos ruled on Capitol Hill and beyond in 2023.
0: Right now, blizzard is hitting the plains in the Midwest. Forecasters warning that 75-mile-per-hour winds and heavy snow is going to make it Difficult to near impossible for some people to travel, the storm blew an 18-wheeler off the road and triggered chain reactions in terms of crashes in Nebraska. Some places could get up to a foot of snow. Back in a moment.
1: 2024 will begin with a political bang with just weeks to go before the Iowa caucuses. But what happened this past year could create a political hangover that could last for weeks or even months. From the race to the White House to the wars overseas and the battles on Capitol Hill, CNN's Eva McCann looks back at a year governed by chaos.
11: When it comes to the top 10 political stories of 2023, this was another big year, with unprecedented chaos in Washington, courtroom spectacles, and accusations of brazen corruption. At number 10, Senator Bob Menendez faces corruption-related oh, charges.
12: But you're being accused of aiding a foreign government. Why is that appropriate for you to go to a classified briefing? Bottom line is,
13: I'm a United States Senator, I have my security credentials and an accusation is just that it's not proof of anything.
11: Menendez and his wife are accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes, including gold bars, cash and a luxury vehicle in exchange for the senator's influence. The indictment led Menendez to step aside as chair of the powerful Foreign Relations Committee. But the New Jersey Democrat and his wife maintain their innocence and have pleaded not guilty He has pledged to remain in his seat despite calls from many lawmakers to resign, including from some of his fellow Senate Democrats. At number nine, a moving tribute to Rosalind Carter, the former First Lady, humanitarian, and mental health advocate. Former President Jimmy Carter emerges from hospice care to attend a public memorial service, paying tribute to his late wife, which also brought together the First Ladies' Club. The Carters became internationally known for their humanitarian work after Carter's stinging presidential defeat in 1980. They have the longest marriage in presidential history at 77 years. Number eight, Hunter Biden's high stakes plea agreement with federal prosecutors falls apart.
14: The prosecutors who came forward to us and were the ones to say, can there be a resolution short of a prosecution?
11: Now he's facing three federal firearms charges and nine new tax charges. The case could pose another challenge to President Joe Biden's reelection bid with House Republicans also investigating the president's son and pursuing an impeachment inquiry into the Democratic incumbent. So far, the GOP-led probe has struggled to uncover wrongdoing by the president.
8: I'm here today to make sure that the House committee's illegitimate investigations of my family do not proceed on distortions, manipulated evidence, and
11: lies. Number seven, foreign wars create political fractures at home from the halls of Congress to college campuses. Oh, 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 oh. President Biden calling on Americans to unite behind Israel and Ukraine in their respective conflicts.
15: American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances will keep us America safe.
11: But the president facing skepticism from Republicans on providing more aid to Ukraine.
13: Republicans uh, disagree amongst themselves about exactly how we should respond to the Ukraine question.
11: And pressure from some in the progressive wing of Biden's own party over Israel. President Biden, not all America's with you on this one. And you need to wake up and understand that. Number six, the Republican race for the White House takes shape. We're going to win the Iowa caucuses, so that. Donald Trump closes out the year as the commanding frontrunner for the GOP nomination as his rivals battle to emerge as the leading alternative to the former president. After entering the race as the top threat to Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's rise was slowed amid a shaky campaign launch and a series of campaign resets.
9: Uh, we are going to have this debate in Iowa uh, before the caucus. I will be there.
6: Donald Trump should be there.
11: Meanwhile, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley gained momentum late in the year after several strong debate performances. Where have y'all been? (laughs) Amid Trump's dominance, several GOP hopefuls dropped out before the calendar turned to 2024, including former Vice President Mike Pence, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Number five, is a
10: human right.
11: the potency of abortion rights in a post-Roe America. More than a year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, abortion rights proved to be a galvanizing issue for Democrats.
5: We want to protect abortion access.
11: Helping deliver victories for Democratic candidates in off-year elections in Virginia and deep red Kentucky and voters in Ohio. Passing a ballot measure to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. We did it. Number four, President Joe Biden announces his reelection bid facing significant political headwinds and setting up a potential rematch with
14: Donald Trump. It is time to finish the job. Finish the job. Four more
11: Biden's bid for a second term is imperiled by stubbornly low approval ratings and persistent questions about his age, his campaign leaning on his legislative record and drawing a contrast with his 2020
6: rival. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy, the MAGA movement.
11: Despite weariness from some Democrats, Biden is expected to face little resistance in winning the party's nomination in 2024, drawing long-shot challenges from Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips and author Mary Ann Williamson. Several third-party candidates have also announced, including Robert Kennedy Jr. and progressive scholar Cornel West, who could turn into wild cards in the general election. Number three, embattled congressman George Santos expelled. I don't care. The U.S. House voted to expel the New York Republican after a scathing ethics report and a year-long swirl of controversy about Santos's litany of lies. Santos becomes just the sixth member in history to be expelled from Congress and the third since the Civil War.
16: Why would I want to stay here? The hell with this place?
11: After winning a battleground house district, major pieces of Santos's biography fell apart, including his claims around his education, professional experience and family background. Santos was later indicted on federal charges, including wire fraud and money laundering, but pleaded not guilty and has denied the allegations.
15: I'm
17: not really commenting on the ongoing uh, investigation.
11: Santos reemerged soon after being removed from office on the celebrity video message site Cameo. Happy, happy birthday. Number two, Kevin McCarthy becomes the first House Speaker removed from the post. McCarthy's ouster came 10 months after he claimed the gavel. Following a floor fight that went five days and took 15 rounds of voting, that divided the GOP and saw the California Republican bend to a series of concessions to hardline conservatives. In the end, eight House Republicans joined with Democrats to depose McCarthy.
8: Because it's just a few, these eight, working with all the Democrats to ruin the reputation of the Republicans.
11: The move sparked weeks of chaos and infighting among House Republicans as they struggled to coalesce around a successor before ultimately voting to elevate little known Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson as the new speaker.
7: I I want to thank you all for the trust that you have instilled in me.
11: Number one, the country's 45th president and leading Republican presidential candidate becomes the first former president to face criminal charges.
8: I won't be able to go to Iowa today. I
11: won't be able to go to New Hampshire today because I'm sitting in a courtroom. Trump is facing 91 criminal counts, ranging from conspiracy to obstruct justice to racketeering across four separate jurisdictions in New York, Washington, D.C., Georgia, and Florida. Trump denying all those accusations.
13: An indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United
6: States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding.
11: The defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. The Fulton County, Georgia, indictment resulting in this historic image, the first mugshot of a former U.S. president. The former president regularly turning his courtroom appearances into campaign-style events. This
14: is a witch hunt, the likes of
8: which probably nobody has ever seen.
11: In a preview of 2024, when the political and legal calendars are set to collide. Eva McKend, CNN, Washington.
0: Our oh, Thanks to Eva for that. Overnight, Ukraine says it launched an explosive attack on a Russian warship. A fireball erupting at a port, how Ukraine's defense could actually get a boost from Russian cash.
1: And the once promising campaign of Ron DeSantis may be on life support, what one close advisor is reportedly saying behind closed doors. That's next. New this morning, Ukraine claims it struck and destroyed a Russian warship in Crimea, killing one person. The video shows a massive explosion. You can see right there at a port in Crimea this morning. Now, CNN has not been able to verify the video or the claims, but Russia has confirmed the ship was, quote, damaged by a Ukrainian airstrike using guided missiles.
0: And now with aid for Ukraine clearly in doubt, the New York Times reports that the U.S. and Europe are considering seizing up to $300 billion in Russian assets to help fund Ukraine's defense. CNN political and national security analyst and New York Times correspondent David Sanger is back with us. Obviously, David, this is your reporting it comes with a lot of risks, right? It didn't happen. Actually, it wasn't done after uh, Russia seized Crimea. How likely do you think it is that this would happen now?
3: Well, that's right, Poppy. Uh, there were a lot of op- there was a lot of opposition to the idea, uh, chiefly from the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and also from the Fed. And their argument was pretty simple. It was if countries are uh, get accustomed to putting money in the New York Federal Reserve, some of which they keep in the form of gold, some of which they just keep as assets in US dollars. Uh, And they think the United States could seize that money uh, in a a wartime situation or for any other reason without going through a a lengthy legal process. Um, They might be less uh, willing to put their money and their assets in US dollars. But I think as time has gone on and as it has become clear that Congress either won't provide additional aid to Ukraine or will provide it in, in lesser amounts than we've seen in the past two years, uh, there's been greater and greater pressure to find a, a way to go do this. And so they're doing it through the group of seven nations, uh, hoping to have the cover of international law and most of the assets are, are here in Europe.
1: Do they think that from a liability, from a legal perspective, things have actually changed? Or is this purely because they're not, they're no longer convinced Congress can provide it?
6: Uh, I
3: think, Phil, the arguments haven't changed. I think that uh, they're mostly concerned that even if Congress does pass additional uh, aid now, it may not later on. Now, the original idea, Phil, was to take this $300 billion and use it for Ukrainian reconstruction of the cities. Obviously, it's going to take more than $300 billion to make up for the damage that the Russians have done in nearly two years of war. But now there is actually some discussion underway about maybe using some of the money to fund uh, artillery, uh, other uh, arms and, and support for the war itself because the Ukrainians are really feeling the pinch.
0: What about the reporting uh, from your colleagues at the Times that Putin has been sort of quietly signaling that he is open to a deal for a ceasefire in Ukraine that would essentially have him hanging on to the territory that they have taken so far, far less than he set out, obviously, uh, to call it an end?
3: This was really um, fascinating uh, reporting by uh, Anton Tronofsky and uh, Julian Barnes and Adam Entros at the Times. And what they found was that twice uh, Putin has signaled quietly and through third parties to keep some deniability about it, that he's open to a deal. But the deal he's discussing would require that uh, Ukraine agree that he's basically holding than nearly 20 percent of the country where Russian troops are, are now dug in. And it's really hard for me to imagine President Zelensky having declared time and time again that uh, Ukraine would not give up one inch of territory that the Russians had seized, would enter into the negotiation with that as a prerequisite, or even with a likely outcome.
1: Right. So- What happens next? You know, this year seems to be a critical year when you look at funding, when you look at whether or not there'll be negotiations.
3: Uh, Is there an end game? Has an end game been discussed? There have been a lot of end games discussed, Phil. Um, And you know, the the images that you just showed before of that uh, Russian ship aflame tells you that the Ukrainians are still capable of really uh, ingenious and sometimes long range strikes. That ship was, was uh, moored off Crimea. But it's really hard to imagine right now how either side breaks through from the current line of combat. And if anything, in 2023, the Russians gained a bit of ground. Not much, but a bit. And so you've got to think at some point, you know, all wars end and they all end in a negotiation. And one's got to hope that at some point they can move to a negotiated end here just to stop the bloodshed on all sides. But it's really hard to understand how you get from here to there. Yeah.
0: David Singer, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being with us.
3: Great to be with you, Bobby.
1: Well, at this hour, a new caravan of migrants is headed for an already overwhelmed U.S.-Mexico border. We're going to be live from Eagle Pass, Texas, with
0: that story next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. good morning,
1: everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. Breaking overnight, the Biden administration has directed airstrikes against an Iranian-backed group in Iraq after three U.S. military service members were
0: wounded in an attack. What we're learning this hour. A county sheriff in Texas says law enforcement does not have enough resources to deal with the latest migrant surge. That surge about to increase as another caravan of migrants head to the border. And former President Trump spent the Christmas holiday railing against many legal cases and against President Biden. What he said and what he's now asking a federal appeals court to do. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now.
1: And we begin this morning with the risk of escalation growing in the Middle East. Overnight, President Biden ordering a retaliatory airstrike against the Iranian-backed militant group Kataeb Hezbollah. The strike came less than 13 hours after the group took credit for a one-way drone attack that wounded three US troops in Northern Iraq. Now, officials say the group is a Shia militant-aligned organization that, quote, poses a high threat to US personnel in Iraq and Syria.
0: Meanwhile, Iranian officials are vowing revenge this morning after an Israeli airstrike in Syria killed a high-ranking Iranian military advisor. And this all comes with increasing concern of the war broadening throughout the Middle East. These dangerous back-and-forth strikes all playing out as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warns the war is far from over and that the Israeli military is now, quote, intensifying its operations inside Gaza.
1: We start things off this morning with CNN's Priscilla Alvarez, who's live for us at the White House with more. What are you learning, Priscilla, about the president's decision to direct these strikes?
2: Well, the president was immediately briefed following that attack that wounded three American service members in northern Iraq, one of whom was critically injured. And he personally authorized these strikes after being presented options by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin yesterday afternoon. Now, according to the White House, they say during that call, the president directed strikes against three locations utilized by Kataev, Hezbollah and affiliated groups focused specifically on un command aerial drone activities. The president places no higher priority than the protection of American personnel serving in harm's way. It goes on to say the United States will act at a time and in a matter of our choosing should these attacks continue. Now U.S. Central Command has since said that early assessments show that that they they likely hit um, uh, militants and that there were no civilian casualties. And the Secretary, uh, Austin, also saying that these were, quote, necessary and proportionate. But again, Phil and Poppy, these were strikes that were directed by President Biden yesterday, just hours after that attack on American service members.
1: All right, Priscilla Alvarez, live from the White House. Thank you.
2: So this
0: morning, tension is high after uh, after Iran, Hezbollah and other armed factions vow to retaliate and avenge the death of a top Iranian military advisor. This happened on Monday following an airstrike that reportedly killed him. Iran's foreign minister warned Israel of future repercussions, saying, quote, Tel Aviv should expect a tough countdown. Still not clear who was behind the strike. Questions remain about whether it was Israel. Will Ripley joins us live from Tel Aviv with much more reporting. This isn't just any advisor. This is really a crucial advisor.
17: And this is exactly the kind of development that the U.S. and Israel did not want to see, which is the widening uh, of this conflict uh, in Gaza to a much more dangerous and serious regional conflict. And yet, The signs of that are already popping up right now around the region. We know uh, that Iran and Iran-linked armed factions are believed by the U.S. and Israel to be carrying out attacks already in Iraq and Syria, targeting U.S. sites, and uh, in Lebanon and Yemen, targeting Israel also uh, from Yemen, uh, launching attacks into the Red Sea, targeting commercial uh, shipping, which basically has a global impact. So we now are hearing from Iran about this latest accusation that Israel, by the way, is not commenting on, uh, that one of their senior military advisors has been killed. Let me read you just a portion of a statement from the foreign ministry in Tehran. It says, quote, The Islamic Republic reserves the right to take necessary measures to respond to his killing at the right time and in the right place. Now, we know that Iran cannot afford to directly go to war with Israel, uh, given the sanctions, the protests and their dire economic situation. But what they can do and what they're believed to be doing already is pumping funding, weapons, resources, even training into their proxies across the region. That's why you have Israel saying essentially right now, Poppy and Phil, that they're fighting out a war on several fronts.
1: Yeah, it's an important point, something everybody's keeping a very close eye on. And it's all happening as we learned a close confidant of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's expected to be in Washington meeting with Biden administration officials today. What is Israel saying as the same time it,
17: it's offensive in Gaza? It seems to be intensifying well. Well, Israel is going to make the case to the United States that they need as much support as they can get right now. They need support both uh, militarily, but particularly diplomatically. Because of the momentum around the world, this UN resolution, which the U.S. succeeded in having the language softened quite a bit before abstaining from the vote. But a lot of countries, when it comes to geopolitics, are really pressuring Israel uh, to have, you know, basically do whatever it takes to have a ceasefire right now in Gaza, which Israel says would be exactly the wrong approach because it would give Hamas time to regroup and it would give them time to restock and to actually strengthen and israel says that would be a very very dangerous situation because they point out again to this multi-front war that they say they're fighting most fiercely right now in gaza but also uh, on the border with lebanon with hezbollah in iraq in yemen and in iran uh the houthi rebels in yemen they're not only uh, a problem for israel they're also a problem for the global economy in fact shipping companies have had to send their ships on different routes which is delaying supply chains by up to a month as you both know so this conflict spreading out, and the U.S. and Israel are going to have very serious talks at the White House to try to figure out what to do to contain this.
0: Well, Ripley, live in Tel Aviv. Thanks for the reporting. Well, new warnings this morning along the U.S.-Mexico
1: border. Local law enforcement is sounding the alarm that it does not have the manpower for the expected surge of migrants trekking as part of a caravan from southern Mexico to the U.S.
0: And this all comes ahead of the Secretary of State Antony Blinken's meeting with Mexico's president, Rosa Flores, live for us again this morning in Eagle Pass, Texas with much more. Good morning, Rosa. What are you hearing on the ground?
18: Well, Bobby, what I'm hearing is from a senior CBP official who says that even though the scene behind me has improved, you're not seeing thousands of migrants waiting outside to be transported for immigration processing, that the agency is not out of the woods yet. This official saying that illicit activity continues. Smugglers still trying to push migrants to cross illegally, not just here in the Eagle Pass area, but also in very remote areas of Arizona. And so the Biden administration has been dealing with this increasing level of migrants who have been crossing into the U.S. illegally, and they've been surging resources to uh, the border region. And also they've closed several ports of entry in several states, trying to uh, reassign those personnel to process migrants. And they're also using something called decompression. All that means is areas that are at or over capacity, like Eagle Pass was last week, those migrants are being transported to other areas for processing. Here in Eagle Pass, those migrants have been going to the Rio Grande Valley, Laredo, and also to Del Rio. I want to take you to Del Rio because we were there yesterday when a group of migrants celebrated mass under an awning. This is at a respite center there. And the priest tells us that he has been feeding these migrants three times a day. But yesterday he arrived with an altar and some food for the soul. Take a listen.
15: We had a few people come to our church to celebrate with us there and we knew that there was a lot more here. So we thought it'd be best for them to have have a moment to have mass here.
18: He says that on Friday, about 200 migrants arrived there. There were about several dozen uh, migrants yesterday. But Phil and Poppy, look, the Biden administration has been trying to impose legal consequences to a legal entry in the United States, but it's really been testing their holding capacity along the U.S.-Mexico border. Those migrants that you saw, they had been processed and released, as many migrants are uh, in, in these border communities after being processed by immigration.
1: Yeah, A critical week ahead. Rosa, thank you. Well, Donald Trump is now urging a federal appeals court to grant him immunity from prosecution What the latest court filing is revealing.
0: And not Nikki, why Trump's strongest supporters and even his own son are asking him to avoid picking Nikki Haley as a running mate. Welcome back. Some disturbing news this morning. The FBI working with local law enforcement investigating these threats against justices on the Colorado Supreme Court. The sometimes violent rhetoric is following the court's 4-3 ruling last week that Trump was constitutionally ineligible to appear on the state's Republican primary ballot. And this is a result of the insurrectionist ban included in the 14th Amendment. Analysts shared with CNN, analysis shared with CNN shows an uptick in this heated online language about the four judges in the majority who voted to disqualify Trump. And while there are no direct known threats at this time, there are big concerns about what this could cause. Trump's team has called the ruling undemocratic. His lawyers have vowed to file an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: Well, former President Trump taking to truth social over the holiday to wish America a Merry Christmas and lash out at his rivals. On Christmas Eve, Trump called special counsel Jack Smith deranged. On Christmas Day, he falsely accused President Biden of presiding over election interference It comes after Trump asked the federal appeals court to drop the charges in his criminal election subversion case and just three weeks before he takes on his GOP rivals in the Iowa caucuses. CNN's Kristen Holmes joins us now. Uh, I, i had a little hesitant to ask, but was there a strategy behind what we saw on social media from the former president the last couple of days?
19: So the strategy is just keep doing what he's doing. Trump and his team have grown increasingly confident, particularly when it comes to Iowa, that they're going to win that caucus, they're going to win that state and by a big margin. And you have to remember what they have been seeing is an increase in poll numbers even as he continues this authoritarian language, even as he continues this aggressive anti-immigration rhetoric and even as he continues to paint his legal problems as purely political. Now, I will note, as you said he did have a prolific time over the last several days on social media, really railing against these legal issues he has, particularly against Jack Smith, Joe Biden, one point saying the thugs inside of America should, quote, rotten hell. And of course, I do want to make sure to add that right after that, he said, again, Merry Christmas, not your typical leader calling for peace on Christmas type of messaging. But again, this is Donald Trump. Now, while they do feel increasingly confident about Iowa, I do want to point out they still have a lot of questions about New Hampshire. Just because he is leading in the polls there, they are not nearly as confident. They have seen Nikki Haley surging, and they know that a lot of New Hampshire voters are still undecided.
0: What about big picture, the legal issues? I mean, we're starting the new year in about a week, and he's got a host of trials waiting for him in 24.
19: So, Poppy, when it comes to his legal issues, several of them weigh heavier than others. So, first of all, as we have talked about at length, Donald Trump's lawyer's strategies is really just delay, delay, delay. So, when you look at all of the cases he's facing, and I believe we have something here so I can pull it up just for reference, you talk about the Manhattan Hush Money case, you talk about the Classified Documents case, the DOJ 2020 election interference case, as well as the Fulton County election interference case, and then, of course, the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial. He is very fixated on that civil fraud trial. Now, of course, that has wrapped. We are waiting for a decision in that. When it comes to both of the federal cases, yes, they are worried about the classified documents case as a whole. However, they do believe that it is likely that the dates on that are going to shift until after the election in 2024. Now, when it comes to the election interference case, which has been set for March As we have seen, the judge put a hold on that. Now there is speculation that that date is going to shift, too. And if you look at the calendar, that was actually scheduled to start the day before Super Tuesday. But when you look at this calendar and you see the dynamics between the political and the legal, you can see why this is weighing on Donald Trump. He wants to focus on this election and he wants to run for president, not focus on all this legal stuff. In
0: some of those cases, he's going to have to be present uh, for them. Kristen Holmes, thanks very much for the reporting. Well, there have been a series of
1: reports that Donald Trump has been asking advisers what they think about Nikki Haley as he begins to decide potential vice presidential picks. The pushback from Trump's allies, the MAGA crowd, even Donald Trump Jr. has been loud and it has been forceful. They're telling the former president don't even think about choosing the former South Carolina governor. Just last week, presidential candidate Chris Christie called Haley out for not explicitly ruling out the possibility of taking a role as Trump's number two. I'll
9: be honest with
6: you. If I were to drop out and support Nikki Haley, I have no confidence, no confidence in the fact that she'll make the case against Trump.
1: Well, joining us now is Ron Brownstein, a CNN senior political analyst and senior editor at The Atlantic. Ron, you've said that Chris Christie has a point with what he's saying there. Why? Yeah.
8: Well, look, I mean, Nikki Haley has gained ground on Donald Trump. But in many ways, as she has become more prominent in the polls or improved in the polls, she seems even more reluctant to cross a line in making a case against him. And, you know, Chris Christie's view, I think there are other Republicans who think that, like uh, perhaps Tim Scott before her, she may be running To a point with one eye on not going too far to alienate Trump and his allies, either because she's interested in vice president or secretary of state, or she thinks that's a way to be viable for 2028. Uh, Ultimately, Phil, I mean, she at this point is doing well at consolidating the portions of the party that are the most alienated from Trump and have been really in many ways from the outset, if she is going to truly threaten him in any way, she's going to have to make a sharper case about why people who are now oriented toward voting for him should not. And as Chris Christie points out, she has only gone so far in doing that.
0: I hear that, but Chris Christie's goal in all of this, right? I mean, obviously he wants to become the nominee, but also is for Trump not to become the nominee. And one of the most viable paths to get there those who are calling for him to drop out is for him to drop out. So I understand what he's saying about the rhetoric from Nikki Healy, that it doesn't go far enough, but also by staying in, the counter argument would be you're preventing anyone from no. actually beating him. No.
8: Well, you're, you're right. That, that, right. That's the paradox here. Right. I mean, you know, the, 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 the anti-Trump, wing of the party is probably 25 percent, 30 percent on a good day in the right state. And that is necessary, but not sufficient to win. I mean, Haley's strategy really has been to run from the center toward the right, consolidating those, those, that side of the party as much as she can, uh, and then hoping perhaps momentum itself allows her to grow uh, into, the, you know, into the Trump coalition. DeSantis, of course, ran from the other side, uh, trying to run at Trump from the right, peel away enough of his supporters, and then leave the moderates with no choice. That has proved to be a very problematic road, uh, to say the least. Um, But, you know, what you're saying is largely correct, and what Chris Christie is saying is largely correct. I mean, you know, Haley ultimately needs to make a case against Trump. It doesn't have to be the same case that Chris Christie is Mm -hmm. making. But even if she performs well in New Hampshire, Poppy, the polling shows she's trailing significantly among Republicans. She's uh, mm-hmm. A lot of her strength there is among independents who are allowed to participate in the New Hampshire primary. And ultimately, you can't be a party's nominee without winning its partisans, uh, as John McCain learned mm-hmm. in the 2000 race. Yeah. A lot of similarities. So maybe, you know, the most charitable explanation is that Christie is kind of focusing on the low hanging fruit through New Hampshire. But even if that position her to eclipse DeSantis, become the principal rival to Trump at that point, She has a month before her home state in South Carolina, and either she is going to make a sharper case against Trump and and potentially threaten him, or she's not, and she's not. Ron, what do you make
1: of the, not only the burst of stories about Nikki Haley being talked about by the former president, uh, rarely are those things uh, just out of the blue, and and then the immediate kind of turning of fire from Don Jr., Tucker Carlson, everybody in the kind of MAGA world against Haley.
8: Well, you know, historically, Phil, as you know, it has been difficult for people to run against each other to end up on the same ticket. It has happened, uh, but there are always uh, often a lot of bruised feelings. Donald Trump has called her a bird brain. Logical politics would say Haley has shown she is strongest where he is weakest, uh, that, you know, she has a lot of appeal among uh, center-right suburban voters who have never been warm to Trump, uh, especially women when you look at the polling against Biden. So there would be a lot of logic in doing it. The fact that they are attacking her so much in the Trump camp, I think, is reflective of a broader truth that you see in uh, the aggressiveness and uh, uh, you know extreme nature of much of his agenda. They are feeling very confident. Uh, Biden's weakness in the polls has them feeling that not only is the primary well within reach but the general election is Mm -hmm. well within reach. And by normal political metrics, you would say a president at 40% approval, uh, you know, is in serious trouble. And there is trouble for Biden. But Trump, I think, responding to all of this, is putting forward an agenda that is so polarizing and so extreme from repealing the ACA to internment camps, you know, to his threats about weaponizing the Justice Department, that he is providing Biden a potential path, that even if there is a majority that is not necessarily affirmatively excited about giving Biden four more years, they very very well may be a majority as there were in many places, in most places, in 1820 and 22, that do not want to live under the vision of America that Trump is putting forward. So I, I look at that quick denunciation of Haley as just one more piece of evidence that they feel that they can run this election out on the vanguard of polarization and even extremism, openly uh, authoritarian and racist rhetoric, and still win. And time will tell if that strategy, if he does become the nominee, simply was a bridge too far. Yeah. It's going to be a busy year. Ron Brownstein, thank you, as always. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me,
1: guys. A
0: big winter storm could make it travel a bit more dangerous. This holiday week will show you the areas most affected.
1: And if you're heading out to return some Christmas gifts today, prepare to be frustrated. We're going to explain why
0: next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
1: Well, goodbye to free returns. Maybe. If you're thinking of sending back a disappointing gift you just received over the holidays, it's a little bit rude. But it also may cost you. More and more retailers are now charging return fees. Joining us now to lay out all of this, CNN Business Reporter Nathaniel Meyerson. Okay, so
16: look, let's just start from the top line. Is this the end of free returns? It's looking like it, Phil. I hope neither of you guys got any disappointing holiday gifts. None. 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 So 81% of retailers are now charging Um, for at least one return method. And it's typically charging for online returns. So you look at some of the shipping fees that retailers are charging. I'm a J.Crew shopper. I like to bring it back in the store, avoid that $7.50 fee. Macy's, $9.99. No, thank you. And then Amazon has started to charge a $1 fee for customers who are returning items to the UPS store when there's a closer Whole Foods or or Kohl's store uh, near them. And online returns, they're more expensive for retailers than bringing it back in the store. And they can get you to buy something if you go back.
0: Sure, that's a good point. (laughs) There is a cool machine at Whole Foods where you, like, put it in the box and you print the label and the whole thing. Uh, What else should we be looking out for in terms of trends
16: Yeah. So some interesting new trends with returns. It's a huge, it's a huge business. So shorter return windows. They're tight. The retailers are tightening Mm. the return windows. You can now just bring it back without a box and without the label. And then you have companies like Staples. They'll offer you a discount if you bring them back your Amazon returns and then you go shop in the store about 10% off. And then this one is really interesting stores just offering you to keep the returns because it's more expensive. For them uh, to, to ship it back, you look at re- and you look at some of the, the return rates. Eight percent of all items were returned in 2019. It's doubled to tw- in 2022 to 16 percent. It's because we're buying so much online. Much likelier to return something you buy online than in stores. Or maybe just people aren't giving as good a gifts anymore. That could that's be. Not, it. That's on us. That could not be. It. That's, on, that's on
1: you. Daniel sir, we appreciate it, my friend. Thank <laughs>
0: you. Range over here. Ahead, reporting from The New York Times suggesting Ron DeSantis' campaign may be on its last leg. We'll talk about it.
1: We're now less than three weeks away from the Iowa caucuses. We even have the clock up for you. It could be do or die time for Ron DeSantis, who stake his entire campaign on the state of Iowa, investing a significant amount of time and resources there. A New York Times report released on Sunday examining, quote, what went wrong for Ron DeSantis in 2023, not a great headline three weeks out, suggests that the Florida governor's once promising campaign is close to life support. The Times reporting that one of DeSantis's closest advisors, Ryan Tyson, has privately said that they are now at the point of the campaign where they need to, quote, make the patient comfortable, suggesting the DeSantis campaign could be on its last legs. Now, Tyson denied making those comments, and the DeSantis campaign dismissed the story. This comes just days after a pro-DeSantis Super PAC canceled TV ad buys in Iowa and New Hampshire to focus on what they say will be the ground game, underscoring the challenges facing the DeSantis campaign and aligned groups. Back with us now, CNN political commentator Jamal Simmons, former Republican strategist and pollster Lee Carter, and politics reporter for Semaphore Shelby Talcott. Shelby, um, this is like a pre-mortem, sort of, from the New York Times. It's not great. When you talk to people in the campaign world, do they see any path right now forward for the DeSantis campaign?
4: Yeah. I mean, obviously, the DeSantis campaign publicly is going to be really positive heading into Iowa, where he's staked virtually his entire campaign on. But when I talk to people close to the Florida governor, people involved in the campaign, people close to the super PAC, there's this overwhelming sense of resignation and Mm -hmm. sort of, well, we're going to just go down with the ship mentality um, and I think that's a really bad sign for people close to you when donors are saying that, when some of your most ardent supporters are sort of privately saying that. That's a warning sign when we haven't even reached the state where you're supposed to do your best in. And, and as The New York Times reported, it is not just one or two issues that Ron DeSantis has struggled with it's a multitude of things from when he launched his campaign. He launched a very online campaign and he tried to bat- bypass much of the media. That ended up being a mistake. He launched his presidential campaign by uh, you know, hiring 100 plus staffers. That ended up being a mistake. He spent a lot of money on private jets and now he's relying on his super PAC. So it's all of these different things. And if you talk to one person they'll blame the super PAC. If you talk to another person, they'll blame the presidential campaign. It's a multitude of issues combined with the fact that he's also running against Donald Trump.
0: Is it the candidate or the campaign? I think it's the candidate.
5: I don't think he he didn't run a campaign that was based on anything that people cared about. Instead of doing what he could have done when he was really ahead in the polls, it was when he was focused on being Florida's governor and he was focused on freedom. He was focused on creating opportunities for people in the state, he, he stayed open, getting government out of us, you know, out of decision making. Um, and then he started, ran for president, he decided to focus on woke wars, a war on Disney and Mickey Mouse, and then putting in a six week abortion ban. And a lot of people say that's antithetical to who he was and what made him so popular. What made him so popular was that he was all about freedom, getting government out of our decision making, keeping businesses open, creating a thriving economy, and yet he focused on something totally different as soon as he ran. And I think it was a little bit of hubris. Maybe it was arrogance and maybe it was just a, a lack of understanding was what really drove the American people. He promised to be Trump without the chaos. And I think it was absolutely the opposite. I think he created a whole lot of chaos uh, with with some of the positions that he he made. And I think it made Republicans ultimately less Popular. So when, I think big mistakes, and, it, and, and and those decisions
0: rest with him. You say he was supposed to be Trump without the gas. One Republican strategist told The Times reporters he was just Ted Cruz without the personality. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Stabs to the heart. <laughs> it's just brutal. I mean, listen, I've been on these campaigns before when you're, like, cratering, and you're going into these primaries, and you just know that you're not going to make it, and it's, it's, it's a very— my heart goes out to the campaign workers who are giving everything for this— Listen, at the end of the day, it's like the old you know, advertising saw. Sometimes you can change the packaging, but the dogs just don't like the food. And it and it <laughs> appears, it appears that it appears that uh, Ron DeSantis as a candidate just isn't working for people. And I think about what he's done what he's done as candidate. Donald Trump and his super PAC spent $15 million defining Ron DeSantis in the very beginning, and DeSantis didn't respond to it. And basically everything we think about him as being uncharismatic, we kind of know from that $15 million that was spent. Number two, why was he uh, debating uh, Governor Newsom on Fox News? Like, what's that about? It's like, I want to be a heavyweight champ. I'm not going to fight Ali. I'm going to fight Bendini Brown. Like, no, Ron I mean, (laughs) uh, Newsom is not running for president. Why are you going after him? And now we hear he's attacking staff. And I gotta tell you, every campaign I've ever seen, Mm. when the candidate has a chance at the future, is when the candidate knows they have to get their own stuff together, Mm -hmm. and then they can go back out and get their staff focused and win. Barack Obama, for the record, Barack Obama gave the same speech in 2004 at the John Kerry convention that he basically gave his entire rest of his presidency. He knew who he was, he knew why he was running, and that tends to work over time. And frankly, Donald Trump's the same guy. He's the same guy from The Apprentice, that he is now.
1: <laughs> he hasn't changed. What I will say: that is The <laughs> contrast between the Trump campaign and the DeSantis campaign is, is what's so striking because the Trump campaign, not Trump, but the message or the, the truth social post, the Trump campaign is locked in and is a very different campaign apparatus than it was in 16, than it was even in 20. And I heard this from Senator Lindsey Graham. I think we had the sound from over the weekend talking about the message that Trump mm-hmm. needs to follow. Take a listen.
8: I'm worried about 2024. If President Trump puts a vision out improving security and prosperity for Americans, he will win. If he looks back, I think he will lose. Is that something
1: that Trump's advisors can get through to him as they start to move towards a potential general election fight?
4: I think that's the ultimate question. And certainly they see the benefit of moving past it. But at the same time, they have to support their candidate. And so when their candidate continues to harp on the 2020 election, you'll see them publicly back him up, even though it makes their job more difficult. And so I think if you talked to people close to Trump, they would argue, many of them would argue that, yeah, we should move on from the 2020 election. He does have people who would argue that, no, we should not. Um, And so I I think the overwhelming evidence shows that voters are ready to move on from the 2020 election. When I talk to people on the ground, um, the general thing is, okay, we're tired of hearing about that. We want to hear about what's what's going forward. But what Trump's team has, has managed to do also is take the 2020 election, and even as they're continuing to harp on that, they try to relate it back to 2024. And I think that's been sort of their strategy, mm-hmm. and it's been fairly effective. He's
0: replacing Jack Smith from Mueller, right, and things like that. And I think like people,
4: are, people might be tired of the rhetoric,
5: but there is something about him that is tapping into this idea there's a, something that underneath all of this, which is that there's this unfairness in this country, that people aren't treated the same way, that the system is rigged. He's gotten to this two-tier system of justice. And as much as we're tired of hearing the message, he's tapping into something where a lot of Americans agree with him and say, we want somebody who's gonna fight that. And so no matter what it is that, that you might say, I'm tired of hearing all of this, it's, it's, he's got something very emotional, very visceral, that no one else has. There's no one else that's tapping into this sort of cord that is getting so many people rallied. And Nikki Haley's running a really great campaign right now. She's got momentum, but you don't have that same feeling of she's going to address one of the things that's most concerning to, to, to a, a huge voter block, And he's that's right, what Trump He's does.
6: right about this. And it's true on the left as well, right? You see this a lot, of, particularly with African-American voters, a lot of African-American men who feel like they've been sort of left out of the economy. They've got high unemployment rates, education and stuff. They want somebody who's going to, like, buck the system a little bit. And so this is one of the challenges of Democrats. We've seen this on the left with the labor unions. One of the most popular people right now is Sean Fain, who's the head of the UAW, who really called the UAW, the, auto workers, the task, and he fought for his union, and he got them benefits. We've seen this in a, a few different unions now yeah. lately. So I think people want the elites of the country, the people who are sort of in charge of everything, to respond to the needs of the folks who yeah. feel like they're being left out of the bounty that we're all experiencing. Look,
0: he got Biden to the picket line. I mean, big deal. Thank you guys very much. Good to have you. Appreciate it.
1: Well, next, we're going to be breaking down the 10 biggest crime stories that captured America in 2023.
0: Also, Putin critic Alexei Navalny has been found after his lawyers lost contact with him several weeks ago, where the jailed activist is now and what he's saying this morning. Welcome back, some truly hair-raising moments highlighting the lion's share of notable crime and justice stories over the past year. From
1: a kidnapping in broad daylight, to new twists and some high-profile cold cases, to an epidemic showing no signs of ending. CNN's Jean Casares takes a look at the top 10.
20: Hundreds dead in mass shootings, cold case arrests, and murderers on the run. All part of the top 10 crime and justice stories from communities around the country in 2023. Number 10, a young girl kidnapped and found alive.
9: They have found her and we're told she's in good health. The
20: upstate New York elementary school student on a camping trip with her family, taken while riding her bicycle at the campground. We are leaving no stone no branch, no table, no cabin, unturned. Fingerprints on a ransom note left in her family's mailbox led to her and the arrest of 46-year-old Craig Nelson Ross, Jr. He has pleaded not guilty to kidnapping and other charges. Number nine, a daring escape leads to a weeks-long manhunt. 34-year-old convicted murderer Danilo Cavalcante got out of his Pennsylvania prison by climbing sideways up the walls in the exercise yard. I
14: want to reiterate, this man is very dangerous.
20: Hundreds of law enforcement searched by land and by air while local communities lived in fear. Danello Cavalcante now armed but still on the loose. Cavalcante on the run, spotted on trail cameras and allegedly breaking into homes before being captured and returned to prison.
21: Our nightmare is finally over and the good guys won.
20: He now faces 20 new charges. Number eight, a 17 year old Las Vegas high school student beaten to death by his classmates. Authorities call it senseless, 10 students against one. This video is very graphic.
16: What you see
13: in the video though is approximately 10 subjects kicking, stomping, and punching.
20: Police think it started as an after-school fight over stolen headphones.
13: He's on the ground, not defending himself until the point where he becomes unconscious.
20: Eight students arrested, ranging in age from 13 to 17, facing murder charges. Number seven, an arrest. After more than a decade, unsolved killings on Long Island, New York. Nearly a dozen sets of remains found, including four on Gilgo Beach. Authorities long suspected a serial killer.
16: Rex Heuermann is a demon that walks among us.
20: Heuermann is facing multiple murder counts involving three women. He has pleaded not guilty. Number six, a confession in the death of Natalie Holloway. 18 years after she disappeared on a high school graduation trip to Aruba, the prime suspect in her death, der Vandersloat, admits to killing her. Vandersloat flown by FBI agents to Holloway's home state of Alabama to face federal extortion and wire fraud charges.
19: Despite their grief, the Holloway family kept fighting for justice for Natalie.
20: Vandersloat pleaded guilty sentenced to 20 years for his financial crimes. He will serve his sentence while back in Peru where he is already serving a murder sentence for killing a Peruvian woman.
2: It's been a very long and painful journey, but we finally got the answers we've been searching for for all these years. Number
20: five, an arrest in the 1996 killing of Tupac Shakur. The prominent rapper was shot while leaving a boxing match at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas and died six days later.
15: For 27 years the family of Tupac Shakur has been waiting for justice.
20: Dwayne Keith Davis, aka Keefy D, arrested. He is not accused of pulling the trigger, but handing the gun to someone else.
13: Dwayne Davis was the shot caller for this group of individuals.
20: Police say Shakur had been in a feud with Davis and a gang he was affiliated with. Police say no other suspects in the shooting are still alive. Davis pleaded not guilty. Number four, from billionaire cryptocurrency whiz kid to convicted felon. 31-year-old Sam Bankman Freed found guilty in November of stealing billions of dollars from customers of his crypto exchange company, ftx
6: this kind of fraud this kind of corruption is as old as time
20: before the company imploded bankman freed lived the high life he could go to prison for life when sentenced his lawyer says he maintains his innocence number three a disgraced attorney descendant of southern prestige found guilty of murdering his wife and son alec murdoch practicing law in the low country of south carolina wealthy, a beautiful family, but secretly stealing client settlements and plotting the murder and cover-up of those he should have loved the most.
7: We can't bring him back, but we can bring him justice.
20: He has filed a motion for a new trial. Number two, Tyrone Nichols, violently beaten by police. Caught on camera, the 29-year-old repeatedly kicked by five Memphis police officers after a traffic stop and short foot chase. He died three days later. His death ruled a homicide.
2: I know I'll never see him again, but we have to start this process of justice right now.
20: The five officers were charged in state and federal court. All initially pleaded not guilty. However, one later agreed to a plea deal. Number one, mass shootings kill hundreds of Americans.
7: So much loss in this community.
20: From the Lewiston main mass shooting where 18 were killed in a bowling alley and a restaurant. There is such a deep sadness here. To the Covenant School in Nashville where three children and three adults died.
18: We have an active shooter we in our building. In
20: a bank employee in Louisville killing five of his colleagues. Clearly this community completely shaken. An Asian-Americans celebrating Lunar New Year in January, 11 shot dead. 2023 was a year of more than 600 mass shootings in this country, according to the Gun Violence Archive.
0: Our thanks to Jean Casares for that reporting. And ahead, our breaking news coverage of the Biden administration directing airstrikes against an Iranian-backed group in Iraq after three U.S. military service members were wounded in an attack. Those details next more CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Heavy snow, freezing rain, powerful winds all hitting the northern and central plains today. That
1: winter storm creating dangerous conditions on the road and in the skies. It could impact travel plans. CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam joins us now to break it all down. What are you looking at, Derek? Yeah, Poppy,
15: Phil, we had overturned trucks, we had jackknifed 18 wheelers, and we had cars in ditches yesterday on Christmas Day just when everybody wants to have safe travel conditions heading home from their loved ones. That is not the case. This is all part of a larger, very expansive storm system stretching from the southeast all the way to the northern and central plains. Let's focus in on the winter weather that is driving the difficult travel conditions. Full on ice storm for parts of North Dakota, northwestern sections of Minnesota and then the snow that is being blinded by strong winds, drifting that snow over the roadways, making it very difficult to see, reducing visibilities. Check this out in Cheyenne, Wyoming, just over a mile visibility, Limon, Colorado this is across the eastern plains along I-80 very difficult conditions in fact the National Weather Service out of Denver uh, saying that travel is discouraged along portions of I-25 I-70 I-80 stay home a band of heavier snow now moving through the Denver metropolitan area as well that could impact travel conditions at the airport winds will not relax until the second half of this week as the system pulls away the other factor of this large expansive storm is the heavy rainfall particularly across the Appalachians western sections of North Carolina. That's where we have flood watches that are in place through the course of the day today. Rainfall totals could exceed four inches for that area. Notice the heavy rain that's going to move along the I-95 corridor. D.C., New York, Boston, you're next. This is not a snowmaker. This is a rainmaker, and that will be just in time for Wednesday as people try to head home or make their way for their New Year's Eve plans coming up later on this weekend. There's the storm system and its evolution. It's going to be a wet forecast with even more snow for the mountainous regions for the end of the year. Phil, Poppy. Holiday travelers take note. Derek Van Dam, thank you. Right. And our coverage continues right now.
0: Morning, everyone. Top of the hour. So glad you're with us. Hope you had a nice holiday. It is Tuesday, December 26th. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Manningley in New York. We've got a lot to get to this morning. A source tells CNN Ron Dermer, a very close confidant of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, is expected to meet with Biden administration officials in Washington today. They're going to focus on the next phase of the war. This comes as Netanyahu vows a, quote, long fight that is far from ending.
1: The FBI says it is working with law enforcement officials in Colorado in the wake of threats made against state Supreme Court justices. Those threats came after they ruled last week that former President Trump's name be removed from the state's 2024 presidential ballot.
0: After two weeks of no contact, Alexei Navalny's team says they have made contact now with him in a Russian prison that is 2,000 miles away from Moscow. Now the Kremlin critic is speaking out for the first time since he got there. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now.
9: If
14: someone tells you, and they say it all the time, I hear it outside, that we are going to stop the war, that the war is over, the war is not over. It will end in total victory, no less than that. October 7th is not over, it is not over. We have to make sure that it never happens again. This requires what each and every one of you is asking for, just to continue until the end, until the end. And I'm just proud of your determination.
0: That is what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said yesterday, meeting with Israeli troops. This was his second trip inside of Gaza since the October 7th Hamas attacks. He returned to Israel Monday with a warning that the war against Hamas is far from over. Israel's defense minister calling it now a multi-arena war, saying Israel is being attacked from seven different places.
1: Meanwhile, tensions are flaring in the Middle East, with President Biden ordering retaliatory airstrikes against the Iranian-backed militant group Kataib Hezbollah, The strikes came less than 13 hours after the group took credit for a one-way drone attack that wounded three U.S. troops in northern Iraq. And in a separate incident, Iranian officials are vowing revenge after what is alleged to be an Israeli airstrike killed a high-ranking Iranian military, military advisor in Syria. This, as Prime Minister Netanyahu says the Israeli military is, quote, "...intensifying operations." And now the Hamas-run health ministry reports hundreds of people have been killed in Gaza in just the last 24 hours.
0: We start our coverage this hour with our Will Ripley. He is live in Tel Aviv with more. Uh, It is the middle of the afternoon there. And I wonder what you're hearing about the IDF uh, strike and the destruction at that refugee camp in Gaza.
17: Well, you know, we had that U.N. resolution that was all about dialing down the temperature of this conflict. And yet right after that resolution was passed, within hours, Israel announced it was intensifying its military operation in Gaza. And then we had one of the deadliest weekends we've seen since the beginning of this 80-day war. You had more than a dozen IDF soldiers killed, at least 250 people in Gaza who were killed in these airstrikes in central Gaza. And no sign of this devastation slowing down anytime soon. Under the constant buzz of Israeli drones, Palestinians in Gaza once again dig through the rubble with bare hands. This is not a rescue mission. What they find? Remains of loved ones, crushed
13: under a collapsed building. My nieces and nephews, they were all displaced in Al-Barej. They fled the day before yesterday. It was their fate to be martyred here in their uncle's house. My nieces, Layan, Lana and Rana, and my nephew, Hamada. Hamada was only three months old. They are still under the rubble. It's one of the
17: deadliest 24 hours in Gaza, in a war approaching its 80th day. The Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry says 250 people died in Israeli airstrikes on the al refugee camp and nearby Bordej and Nusaydat since the start of Christmas Eve. CNN cannot independently verify the numbers released by the ministry in Gaza. Responding to CNN questions, the IDF said, in response to Hamas's barbaric attacks, the IDF is operating to dismantle Hamas' military and administrative capabilities. IDF refers to Hamas's surprise attack against Israel on October 7th. They killed at least 1,200 people and roughly 240 hostages kidnapped. Video obtained by CNN shows families still digging through the debris for missing relatives, some saying they're still buried under the concrete slabs of collapsed buildings. Children, 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 innocent children, he says. This man says he lost 10 members of his family. And over the collapsed building, he bids farewell to his beloved Dina. The 10 year old, he says, was the playful one. In the mangle of debris, glimpses of the lives that sought safety from one place in Gaza, to the other. It's up to the neighbors to find the bodies of the families trapped beneath. The injured rushed to Alaska hospital through the night, the hospital already struggling with an influx of injuries and bodies from other airstrips. By daylight, the community came together for the ritual of mourning. Bodies or what remained readied for burial. I was waiting for you to grow up, he says. The family moved from one shelter to another in pursuit of safety, this man says. My eldest son. Around every corner, families grappling with the scale of the loss.
10: My daughter Emay was martyred. My five brothers, their children and their wives, all gone. They were displaced from Beit Hanun. There were 96 people in that building, all gone.
17: Survivors of previous airstrikes come to the aid of the new survivors. Khalid lost his grandchildren last month.
8: This is utmost criminality. We are in festivities celebrating Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. People talk about human rights, mercy, the Security Council, the Red Cross and humanity. Where are these human rights?
17: That is the question Gazans keep asking. Where is safe? That is the question that so many in Gaza are asking right now. And they're also asking other questions like where will their next meal come from? The food situation in Gaza is so dire this morning, Poppy, that all 2 million plus people living there are suffering from acute food insecurity, which means in the coming weeks and months, the very real possibility if they don't die in an airstrike or they don't die from a bullet. They could very well die from starvation if something isn't done to help them. Poppy.
0: All two million of them. Wow. Well, Berkeley, thank you for the reporting from Tel Aviv.
17: And
1: joining us now, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Mark Regev, Ambassador Regev, we appreciate your time this morning. I want to start with what we heard from the Prime Good Minister morning. yesterday and also what he wrote in the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial pages, making clear that the offensive isn't, in his words, isn't close to finish, and then laying out his prerequisites, his prerequisites for peace. They included destroying Hamas, demilitarizing and de-radicalizing Gaza. Uh, How close are you to attaining these three goals at this point in time?
22: We're not there yet, but every day we are getting closer. In the northern Gaza Strip, where our campaign started uh, earlier, we're we're seeing the Hamas military machine crack. We're seeing more and more Hamas terrorists uh, voluntarily surrender to the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. We're seeing uh, Israeli control uh, over the ground there. And I think it's only a matter of time before we have victory there in the north. In the south, we started later, as you know, only in November. That'll take a touch longer, but we will see victory there uh, uh, too. And it must be understood that destroying Hamas is a prerequisite for a better future, both for Israelis and Palestinians. You won't have a demilitarized and de-radicalized Gaza without first destroying Hamas. You can't have reconstruction in Gaza, rebuilding the lives of people without first getting rid of Hamas.
1: The, I, I think the primary question I've heard from some officials in reading the opinion piece was the third uh, prerequisite of de-radicalizing Gaza. What is your threshold for that? How do you have metrics for that? How do you ever achieve that, particularly in the wake of uh, an offensive campaign that has led to the deaths of, of what the health ministry, Hamas Health Ministry says is more than 20,000?
22: So we think it can be done, and we think that the, the fact that Hamas has brought this terrible war upon us all, has brought about all this destruction and death, that that will create an atmosphere for uh, Hamas's path of radicalism, of extremism, of fanaticism, that will be discredited in the eyes of many Gazans. And just after victories in the Second World War in places like Japan and, uh, and uh, Nazi Germany led to de-radicalization, and those two countries are now healthy democracies, we believe something similar can happen in Gaza. And I'd, I'd remind you that there have been countries in the Middle East, in the Gulf, countries like Saudi Arabia, countries like uh, the Emirates, where in the past you had a more radical uh, uh, tradition, You know, there were even connections between Saudi Arabia and al-Qaeda in the past and so forth. Those countries themselves have gone through a process of de-radicalization. And today they are moderate countries, open-looking countries, countries that want to embrace the modern world. And and I think the Gazans can learn from the experience of their Arab brothers and sisters. Uh,
1: Those are nations that I think also, if if you were speaking to them privately, would say they have no issues with Hamas being... Uh, dismantled and removed from Gaza, and yet where are they right now? We don't see them making public statements in support uh, of Israel. We see them calling and condemning some of the actions that have been taken. Uh, Where are those nations now?
22: So I think everything depends on us winning this war, and we will win this war. Uh, But once Hamas is defeated, many things that today seem impossible will become very possible. Once Hamas is defeated and, and the world will be discussing building something new in Gaza, I'm sure there will be many partners, many partners in the Arab world as well. And ultimately, I mean, it's obvious that getting rid of Hamas is good for the people of Israel. Uh, Hamas is a brutal and horrific enemy that has committed the most uh, terrible violence against innocent civilians. But people forget that Hamas has also been a curse for the people of Gaza. They've been ruling Gaza for 16 years. And what have they brought the people of Gaza besides poverty, hardship and, and, and... and misery. The people of Gaza also deserve a government that actually, actually cares about them.
1: Ron Dermer, a close advisor and confidant to the prime minister, is uh, scheduled to be in uh, DC today meeting with White House officials. At the time, the White House officials were asking for uh, the scale and the intensity to be ratcheted down, which seems to be different from the message from the prime minister. What are those conversations expected to yield?
22: So, we've been having really good conversations with the administration since this crisis erupted on October 7th. Uh, a close friend of mine said he's never seen the, the level of dialogue with the United States as close, as intensive as it is to now. And, and as you've heard repeatedly, we and the United States share common goals. Israel has the right and the obligation to defend itself against this Hamas terror threat. Israel and the United States want to see Hamas destroyed. We want to see a new reality in the Gaza Strip. Uh, We can have different discussions on this tactical issue or that tactical issue. We listen very attentively to whatever Washington says, and I believe they listen very carefully to whatever we say to them. But ultimately, we're on the same side of this. We want to see Hamas destroyed.
1: Uh, Before I let you go, Ambassador, the uh, Iranian officials have alleged that Israel was behind a strike that took out an IRGC leader in Syria. They have also vowed retaliation. One, is there truth to the fact that Israeli forces were behind it? And two, are you prepared for whatever retaliation may come that's being pledged not just by Iran, but by their
22: proxies? So it's clear that Iran is a major problem here. Uh, Iran not only is present in uh, uh, Syria, but they're present in Lebanon through their proxy Hezbollah. They're present in Gaza. Through their proxy, Hamas, they, they you know, pay for some 93% of Hamas's military machine. And of course, we've seen them present in the Red Sea, interacting, uh, uh, interrupting international shipping, piracy on the high seas, paid for by Iran and sponsored by Iran through its proxy, the Houthis. The Houthis couldn't do anything without their Iranian logistic support. So Iran is everyone's problem. It's Israel's problem. It's America's problem. It's the problem of everyone who wants to see peace and prosperity here in the Middle East.
1: But specifically, were, were Israeli forces behind the strike that took out this IRGC official?
22: I, I, I cannot comment on that specifically. I can say generally, anyone involved in terrorist attacks against Israelis, they can expect that we will find them.
1: Mark Regev, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, sir.
22: Thank you for having me.
0: So the FBI is now joining an investigation into threats made against justices on Colorado Supreme Court following their ruling that disqualifies Trump from the GOP primary ballot. What we're learning about those threats, that's ahead.
1: And Kremlin critic and prisoner Alexei Navalny is back on the radar after a nearly two week disappearance. What he's now saying about his relocation to an Arctic prison known as Polar Wolf, that's next.
0: More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. After that unprecedented ruling in Colorado last week, taking GOP frontrunner Donald Trump off the ballot in the primary in 2024 there, the FBI is now investigating violent threats made against those state Supreme Court justices that were in the majority on that decision, writing in, quote, we vigorously will pursue investigations of any threat or use of violence committed by someone who uses extremist views to justify their actions regardless of motivation. Now, CNN reporting finds those posts are similar to posts of violent language that came after the federal indictments of Trump, but do not detail specific acts or threats. With us now, our CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. What do you know? What's your reporting on how concerning these threats are?
9: Well, very concerning. You've got a combination of the Colorado State Patrol, who's responsible for protecting those judges in state buildings, um, the Denver police, which is also involved in this case, and the FBI uh, working on increasing security around those judges. Uh, now, this was a four-to-three split decision. Um, some of the threats are directed against the judges in the Supreme Court of, of Colorado in general, um, some against specific individuals. But, Poppy, these can be difficult cases to investigate after you increase security because... You know, in these message boards, if you post, you know, I hope they all die under the law, that's not considered a threat. Um, if you say, I'm planning to go and kill one of them, that is a threat. Mm. So they're sorting through the threats in the language.
1: Given that dynamic, how, how can they shift their posture as they're trying to sort through things in a way that they feel like, will have them better prepared should something happen?
9: well i think the first thing is increasing security which they've done and are continuing to evaluate the second thing is you know you and i've been through these investigations before many times in the new york city police department we had a specific have a specific threat squad that does threat assessments and then they'll send people out and interview these people and they'll assess the person who posted it and sometimes they'll say well i didn't mean that or i was drunk um or i was angry um sometimes they'll say we're going to we're gonna take this investigation a step further. And in another case, they can make an arrest, but you have to take them seriously. Look at Judge Mm -hmm. Esther Salas in New Jersey, who had an individual show up at her home, shoot her husband, kill her teenage son. Uh, Look at Judge uh, Romer in Juneau, Wisconsin, who had an individual in one of his cases came to his home after the fact and killed him. Uh, Threats against judges in this country have skyrocketed between 2016 and I think 2018. They doubled last year for federal judges, just federal judges. Uh, that's 2,700 federal judges. There were 4,500 threats that were serious enough to merit investigation by the United States Marshals.
0: That's an incredible number, 4,500 against judges. What is, what is driving it, the increase in anger, the increase against, of threats, and also the increase in deadly violence against judges?
9: Well, a couple of factors. Uh, number one, there is the perceived anonymity uh, for persons making threats of the, of the Internet, of social media. Um, it's not like you're calling up the judge's office in most of these cases and saying, I'm going to kill Judge Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're in these message boards and you're, you're using a handle or a screen name that's not your true name and the conversation gets going, and I saw this um, in the first criminal indictment in Manhattan, where they started threatening the prosecutor uh, the Manhattan DA, where they started threatening the judge. But beyond that, the gasoline on the fire is when you have Donald Trump, a former president of the United States, um, making uh, vivid, vitriolic personal attacks on prosecutors, on judges, um, calling them names. Um, that adds gasoline to the fire in these chat rooms and, and people feel they're being called on. The problem is, for authorities, is sorting out the noise from who the real player is going to be who might show up and do something. I mean, you look at the Nancy Pelosi case where an individual showed up at, a, at her home in San Francisco, home invasion, assaulted her husband, someone who was not on the radar screen um, and comes out of the woodwork. So these are difficult cases.
1: Yeah, no question about it. John Miller, we appreciate it. Thank you. And new this morning, Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny issuing his first message from the remote Siberian prison he was transferred to, telling his supporters that, quote, he's fine. His lawyer visited the jailed activist on Monday at a prison known as Polar Wolf in the Russian Arctic, more than 2,000 miles from Moscow. Navalny's been missing since December 11th, just days after Russian President Vladimir Putin announced his reelection plans. Navalny sent out a series of tweets today, one of which read, quote, Anyway, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm totally relieved that
0: I finally made it. Ahead, Harvard, pressure mounting there from some after the president was accused of plagiarism again, also being criticized over her handling of anti-Semitism on campus. Some key faculty just had a meeting with top school officials. We'll update you on that ahead.
1: And it's been six months after the Supreme Court gutted affirmative action in college admissions, how some black high school students are navigating the new college application process. That's next. Well, Harvard's board appears to be backing its embattled president, Claudine Gay, as the university faces a series of issues, including calls for her resignation. Some members of Harvard's faculty and the university's top governing body held a meeting last week to address problems on campus. The university's newspaper, The Harvard Crimson, reports that no one discussed Gay's removal. Now, earlier this month, Gay and other university presidents struggled to say explicitly calling for the genocide of Jews on campus would violate school rules. Now, Gay has been facing calls to step down since that disastrous hearing and her handling of anti-Semitism on campus. She also faces allegations of plagiarism, and the university is seeing a number of applications plummet. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us right now. in terms of this meeting, in terms of what the actual path forward is for Claudine Gay, what do we know at this point?
13: Yeah, so right now, from our understanding, this seems to have been a meeting to talk about a range of issues. So including rising anti-Semitism on campus, including the plagiarism allegations, but also falling application rates, Also, how they're going to deal with the recent Supreme Court ruling when it comes to affirmative action as well. So a lot of things on the table. And a former dean of Harvard Medical School, who's at this dinner, told CNN it was a very cordial and frank discussion with the members of the Harvard Corporation, which is essentially the main governing body for Harvard. And all that said, while the board members did face a grilling, according to The New York Times, no one pressed for the explicit removal of Claudine Gay, Mm -hmm. according to The Crimson, which is what Harvard pointed us to when we reached out for comment.
0: What, what about this deadline, which is this Friday, for this House probe on anti-Semitism at some of these schools? What, what is Harvard expected to say and do, and where does this go?
13: Yeah, so this is a House probe that obviously it goes back to, to early December when the university presidents yeah. were uh, on Capitol Hill testifying disastrous, as many people described it. So it started with anti-Semitism. Since then, it's expanded to now include plagiarism allegations. You see some of the timeline on your screen there um, based on where we are right now. And so now the House uh, Education Committee is asking the university, among other things, to provide how they've handled instances of plagiarism uh, in the past when it comes to students and other faculty because they essentially want to compare, uh, want to see if they're holding their students to the same account that they're holding their president. And that deadline again this Friday.
0: Okay, Omar, thanks for the reporting on both fronts. Appreciate it. Six months since the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions, students and colleges, as Omar was just referring to, they're grappling with this change. It was a historic decision. It reversed decades of precedent. It ended the ability of post-secondary institutions to consider race or ethnicity as one of many factors in creating diversity on college campuses. Our Gabe Cohen joins us from Washington, D.C., Um, You know, it's interesting on the heels of Harvard having a 17% decline in applications this year. All schools are going to have to now deal with a new, you know, post-affirmative action world.
7: Yeah, Poppy, that's right. And what it's done is it's take the college process, uh, which has already been a bit mysterious and nuanced. And it's added this new layer for students of color who are now debating how to address racial identity in their applications, which they are still allowed to do. But as a result of of that uncertainty, the students I spoke with are taking starkly different approaches
11: hi brown my name is Lenijah, and i am a black girl in stem
7: that's Lenijah russell's application video for brown university she's among the millions of students applying to college six months after the supreme court struck down affirmative action in college admissions navigating how and even whether to include race in their pitch for admission what was your reaction to the decision
11: at first, I, I was a little scared. I thought it was a bit unfair. It made me doubt myself a little bit, like, are my numbers good enough?
7: You actually took some schools off your list.
11: I thought I felt like getting into those schools were almost impossible.
7: But when she sat down to write her college essays, she decided it was more important than ever to discuss race as part of her life experience.
11: I believe it made me emphasize that I was black a bit more than I probably would have. I started expressing myself more through my photos, my hairstyles.
7: Her main essay is about growing up in a rough part of Baltimore.
11: The thing that's important to me is my identity, who I am as a person, and race is a big part of that.
7: You think schools are still looking for that diversity?
11: Yes. Do not ignore such a crucial part of your identity.
7: College advisors like Tracy Ramos are encouraging black students not to shy away from race in their applications, especially in their essays.
11: It paints a holistic picture of who you are.
7: Do you think without boxes to check, it's even more important to write about these issues?
11: I do. A lot of the elite colleges are looking for ways to identify these students. The key piece of advice is make it easy for the colleges to know all of who you are.
7: Many schools have added questions to their applications so students can discuss their life experience and how they'd add to campus diversity.
15: As a student athlete, vice president of the Black Student Union, and vice president of the National Society of Black Engineers,
7: Sean Manley's essays captured his unique experience as a black
15: student in rural Maryland. I was scared at first that they wouldn't be able to see my race and see all the challenges that come with it. I'm very proud of like who I am, and it's a very important part of why I'm here. Do you think it will put you in a better spot? I don't know if writing it in my essay is good or bad yet because we're kind of like the experiment class.
7: The Supreme Court decision has added a new level of stress to an already stressful college application process for students like Sean and Lenijah. Experts expect historically black colleges will see higher enrollment and more applications, and some students are taking a very different approach. You took race out of most of your essays? Yes. Harmony Moore rewrote her essays about being a black student at a mostly white Houston school. Why did you feel that was necessary?
11: I didn't want to have the admissions wrong admissions officer read it and then they all of a sudden like don't want to let me into their school because they feel like I'm trying to like push my race on them. Like, I think I stand out like on my own, like with my extracurriculars and with my honors that I've received. I don't want to just like have the exact same story as hundreds of other black students.
7: And another student told me she's looking at each college individually and only writing about her racial identity for the schools that she believes are more progressive, which again, Poppy, speaks to the calculations that these students are making right now. But I do think it is important to note that the head of the National Association for College Admission Counseling told me students of color right now don't need to write about trauma or adversity to get into college, but they also should not feel deterred by the Supreme Court decision, which is something that they're hearing from a lot of students, Poppy and Phil.
1: Gabe Cohen, really interesting piece. Thank you. Well, if you wanted a brand new Apple watch for Christmas and didn't find one under your tree, you might be out of luck. Why Apple has to pull its newest model Apple watches from the shelves starting today.
0: And a nightmare before Christmas, a six-year-old boy flying by himself ends up on the wrong flight. The family's reaction and what the airline is saying. Well, this morning, Spirit Airlines is apologizing after an unaccompanied six-year-old boy from Philadelphia. You see him there, was on his way to visit his grandmother in Fort Myers, Florida on Christmas Day. And he was placed on the wrong flight, a flight to Orlando instead. The boy's grandmother, Maria Ramos, says fear took over when Spirit staff told her that little Casper was nowhere in sight.
2: They told me, no, he's not in this
22: flight. He missed his flight. I said, no, he could not miss his flight because I have the
0: check-in tag.
1: Now, Ramos said she drove to Orlando to pick up her grandson. After she got a call from him, Spirit has offered to reimburse her for the drive. But all she wants
22: is answers. How did that happen? Did they get him out the plane? Did the flight attendant, after mom handled him with paperwork, did she let him go by himself?
1: Now, Spirit has issued a statement saying, quote, the child was always under the care and supervision of a Spirit team member, and as soon as we discovered the error, we took immediate steps to communicate with the family and reconnect them. We apologize to the family for this experience. The airline also says it's conducting an internal
0: investigation. It's very scary. All right, if you did not get an Apple Watch for Christmas, or maybe you wanted to buy one today, you're not going to be able to find at least the latest version on the shelves at Apple. It's because the trade commission has ruled that Apple's Newest version of the watch violates a patent registered to another company. President Biden had until the end of Christmas Day to overturn that ruling. He did not. CNN's Rahel Solomon joins us with more here. What's this patent dispute over?
21: Yeah, so this is really about the technology that reads blood oxygen levels, right? It's a light-based technology that a California-based company says, hey, wait a minute, that's our technology, and accuses Apple of essentially infringing on their patent. So the companies have been back and forth, and we can show you on your screen just sort of what models this applies to. The companies have been back and forth about this issue for years. Fast forward to late October. That's when the U.S., as you said, International Trade Commission stepped in and essentially sided with that California-based company, Massimo. And so that ruling takes effect today because the Biden administration did not intervene here. So what this means is that if you're looking for uh, one of those models, one of those newer models of the Apple Watch, if you're trying to get it directly from Apple, you might have a hard time you can, however, get it from some of the other retailers who may still have it on their shelves until they run out. Now, the impact to Apple, which is, of course, is the big question. It's a huge, massive company. May not be as much as you think. I spoke to Dan Ives within the hour. He's been covering this stock for the last 15 years or so. And I asked him, hey, what is the impact to Apple? And he said, it's not significant. He said, we estimate it to be 200 to $300 million in lost revenue. He called it more of a PR black eye a financial black eye. 200 or $300 million. Listen, still a lot of money, but not a lot of money for Apple. Yeah. But he said, this is more about the optics. It's, it's not a good look when you're accused of essentially stealing someone else's technology. So this is more of a, of a PR issue for them right now.
1: Fascinating. It's, it's, this is yeah. fascinating. And the Biden administration could have stepped in. They chose not to step in. We'll see what happens going forward. Rahel yeah, Solomon. Thank, thank you, you, as always. Well, there's been no shortage of extreme weather events this year, from deadly wildfires that ravaged parts of Hawaii back in August to Hurricane Idalia that brought flooding and widespread damage across the southeast. The power of Mother Nature, it has been on full display. CNN's Bill Weir now with the top 10 climate stories from 2023.
14: Starting our list at number 10, the water whiplash that became a signature of 2023 in the American West.
10: What you're seeing here is an attempt to try to get
19: ahead of the storm that continues to pound California.
14: After years of mega drought, rivers in the sky unloaded on California, turning dust bowls into raging floods that took at least 20 lives and filled the mountains with record snow, but not enough to end the drought. At number nine is COP28 in Dubai.
6: Allow me please to declare the meeting adjourned.
14: Where the world came together and for the first time in three decades of climate talks agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. Over 130 nations were hoping for a more ambitious phase out of oil, gas, and coal, but petrostates like Saudi Arabia would not agree. Scientists warn that to meet the ambition of the Paris Accord, planet heating pollution must be cut by more than 40% by 2030, a rate four times faster than the current pace. At number eight, the Mediterranean storm Daniel blasted parts of Greece with over an inch of rain an hour on its way to drowning thousands of people in Libya.
4: Everywhere you turn, it's
10: apocalyptic scenes here.
14: Entire neighborhoods in Derna were washed into the sea a tragedy that scientists say was 50 times more likely on an overheated planet at number 7 over a dozen young people successfully sued the state of Montana for ignoring their constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment by developing fossil fuels for the dozens of states and cities taking big oil companies to court for their role in climate change it was a key win you love us, guys. We love you. number 6 is the summer of smoke brought by a record-shattering scale of Canadian wildfires, an area the size of Missouri burned north of the border. If you get any glimpse of the sun at all on these surreal days, it's this apocalyptic glowing ball in the sky. American air quality in some cities was the worst in generations, closing schools and filling emergency rooms. Number five is the ocean water around Florida, reaching hot tub temperatures of nearly 100 degrees in July. Bringing devastating new levels of coral bleaching to the cradles of Caribbean sea life. That warmer water is also jet fuel for hurricanes. And at number four, rapid intensification became a watchword phrase of 2023. Well, the water has come up and over that seawall, and we're getting sprayed every minute or so. Storms like Not Idalia in Florida's Big Bend, Otis in the East Pacific and Hillary in Southern California showed us how modern storms are getting stronger and faster. At number three, Phoenix, Arizona gave us a new definition of heat wave with 31 straight days at or over 110 degrees. Temperatures hot enough to kill cactus plants also took the lives of at least 100 people, a grim new record. That is just one facet of a warmer globe. At number two, Earth's record temperature, the highest in 120,000 years. A few days in 2023 were a full two degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial levels. And if that becomes the new average, science warns of cascading collapse. And at number one, the Maui wildfires. We're just pulling into Lahaina now, just getting our first glimpse at this town after hearing these nightmarish stories. And it is worse than you can imagine. Generations of water theft, invasive grasses, and recent drought created the fuel. Downed power lines are suspected of providing the spark. And hurricane winds fan the flame until most of beloved Lahaina was turned to ash. With around 100 souls lost, it is the deadliest fire in modern U.S. history. And the battle over how best to rebuild has just begun. Bill Weir, CNN, New York.
0: Thanks to Bill for that. Well, Donald Trump spent the holiday weekend on social media posting attacks against anyone he considers his enemy. We'll get former Republican Congressman Fred Upton's reaction to that and a lot more. And right now, thousands
1: of migrants are walking from southern Mexico to the U.S. border, where authorities have been slammed by a weeks-long surge in migrant encounters. We're going to be live at the U.S.-Mexico border next.
0: Welcome back. Donald Trump spent the holidays on social media this weekend, going after President Biden, going after special counsel Jack Smith and many others. He declared that, quote, of course, he has presidential immunity from key charges against him. The former president continued his attacks on immigrants. This all comes just days after Trump defended recent comments that people entering the country illegally were, quote, poisoning the blood of America. Comments that have been compared to Hitler's rhetoric.
8: First of all, I know nothing about Hitler. I'm not a student of Hitler. Uh, I never read his works. They say that he said something about blood. He didn't say it the way I said it either, by the way. It's a very different kind of a statement. What I'm saying when I talk about people coming into our country is they are destroying our country.
0: With us now, Republican and former congressman from Michigan, Fred Upton, who insists that I call him Fred, but I just can't. So, Congressman Upton, thank you for joining us. I hope you had a very merry Christmas. I'm so struck by... This new polling um, out of Iowa, if I can ask you about another Midwestern state for a moment, because it's rhetoric like this that has likely caucus scores in Iowa, Republicans more likely to support Trump, 42, 43 percent more likely to support him when he says things like immigrants are poisoning the blood of America or the radical left thugs are like vermin, another quote from Trump. What does that tell you about your party right now?
12: Well, he's appealing to the base, and that base is not going to go away. I mean, it's sort of like uh, I think it was Axelrod who said early on that uh, folks prefer the real thing versus DeSantis, which was the the, the light Trump. And uh, so he's appealing to the base, but it really hurts with moderates. It really hurts with uh, you know swing voters uh, for sure. Uh, and you know, I can remember when I was in the Congress, and I retired earlier this year, that so many people said. You know, I like what he's doing on the economy, but why doesn't he just end, drop his, his cell phone into a bucket of water with, with some of these tweets? So it shows that he's not going away. He's doing the same type of, of uh, nasty you know, name-calling that he did during his four years in office that really hurt him uh, in the 20 election. Man, if he had done a couple of things right, if he hadn't gone after John McCain, maybe he would have won Arizona. If he hadn't gone against John Lewis, maybe he would have won Georgia. Uh, if, if he hadn't gone against John Dingell, uh, trashing him, maybe he, he would have won Michigan again, even though the, the vote uh, difference was 150,000 votes versus uh, when when he had won it uh, back four years before. So he's not going away. And, you know, you look at the rhetoric, telling people to go to hell that don't agree with him. Uh, the base loves it, particularly in Iowa, let's face it. Uh, it's not real good in in other places. Probably doesn't help them in New Hampshire, is my guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point about New Hampshire. Can we talk about your effort, the no labels effort, trying to create a unity ticket uh, backed by no labels? It would run against Trump and Biden if that is the general matchup in 2024. Where are you on that? And when are you deciding if you actually get in and who the candidate is?
12: Well, our goal right now is to get on the ballot. We're, we're trying to provide voters a choice if it is Biden and Trump again. Now, we want to provide a, a unity ticket or a, what would otherwise be called a bipartisan ticket. We really have to wait until Super Tuesday to see, to really determine if it's going to be Biden and Trump for sure. Uh, so in the meantime, we're on 12 ballots already. We're active, I think, in 27. There are a number of states that we can't start until next year in terms of collecting the signatures. You know, every state has a different Standard to get on the ballot, so uh, Ross Perot did it. Uh, we're way ahead of where he was, uh, you know, 30 years later, and uh, we're excited about where we are. But we really had to wait until Super Tuesday to determine if it's going to be Biden and Trump. 70 percent of the American public don't want a rematch between these two. For pick the reason, and we want to provide voters a choice. And it's been an exciting challenge for us. Uh, and you know, well, but the candidates themselves would run the campaign. We're just Trying to, to
0: get things started. Right. The important legwork of trying to get them on the ballot. You've got critics in this. Among them, a vocal critic is President Obama's former deputy chief of staff, Jim Messina. I know you saw his op-ed in Politico. Let me just read our viewers part of the argument he's making against what you're doing. Quote, the idea that a unity ticket featuring a Republican and a Democrat could somehow produce a nominee with a clear path to victory is worse than political fiction. The group behind it, no labels, is pushing a dangerous lie. That would serve to put Trump back in the White House. He's calling it a dangerous lie, Congressman. I wonder what you want to say in response.
12: Well, a, a couple of things. You know, the, the polls, and we've seen this uh, for months now, the polls show if it's one on one, Trump is going to beat Biden. And you know, we're trying to provide voters a choice. Uh, you know, that's what a democracy is about. Now. The DCCC and the RNC, they're both against what we're doing. They like the game the way that it is, just the two of them in a one-on-one match. Uh, But we see this dysfunction. We see all the problems back back in Washington. I mean, they can't do a budget. Uh, We're looking at another shutdown in in a couple of weeks uh, with with no action there. Uh, It's time to see a little bit of a difference, and that would be a Republican and Democrat working together. and, And why not let voters have that choice? And our polling shows that 70 percent of the American public don't want to see another rematch between these two.
0: But if you don't know who the candidate's going to be yet, how can you be so sure they won't pull from Biden? I mean, Messina points out, go back to 68 and George Wallace or look Mm -hmm. at Gary Johnson, Jill Stein, Ralph Nader, Ross Perot. They didn't go on to win a single state.
12: Well, member Perot at one point was at 30 percent, and that was in the summer. We have until August, actually, to pull out, uh, early August, uh, if we decide not to run uh, with with a ticket that's in place. So uh, we're months ahead of where Perot was. Perot got on all 50 states, and he got up to 30%. Uh, We have to wait until Super Tuesday. Well, I don't remember he he pulled out, but it's different. 30 years later, it's different. I mean, you didn't have, you know, I was with President Bush when Ross Perot actually called to say that he was he was going to run. Uh, we know that, in fact, we can win some, some states and we'd be in it to win it. I mean, we, we got a long time here, uh, but the, the American public is frankly disgusted with what they see today.
0: In it to win it, Fred Upton, former Republican congressman, uh, thanks very much for being with us. Merry Christmas. You too. Talk to you soon.
1: Well, new warnings this morning along the U.S.-Mexico border, local law enforcement sounding the alarm that it does not have the manpower for the expected surge of migrants trekking as part of a caravan from southern Mexico to the U.S.
0: This comes right ahead of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's arrival for a meeting with Mexico's president. Let's go to Rosa Flores. She's live right on the border there in Eagle Pass, Texas. The migrants are certainly continuing, and I wonder what you're seeing and hearing on the ground this morning.
18: Well, Poppy, we just saw a small group of migrants cross into the U.S. and they're being taken uh, for processing by U.S. immigration authorities. But what we're also learning is more about what's driving this surge. And it's not just the cartels or your run-of-the-mill smuggler. Um, It's actually pseudo-legitimate travel agencies abroad that a CBP official says that the agency is cracking down on. They say that these agencies are promising individuals travel to the United States, but instead they are connecting them to smugglers south of the border now one of the nationality that's being targeted is the senegalese which makes this video that i'm about to show you make a lot of sense we recently took this video in arizona take a look i work for cnn and i'm wondering where you're from what country you're from senegal
13: senegal
18: senegal senegal
10: Senegal. Senegal. everybody from senegal
18: Now that same CBP official says that these groups, these smugglers are smuggling about 500 to 1,000 people at one time to very remote areas of Arizona, which of course creates a logistical nightmare for US border patrol agents who then have to transport them to processing facilities, but back here in Eagle Pass, you can see behind me that the scene has changed since last week. We're not seeing a thousand or more than a thousand migrants behind me waiting to be transported for immigration processing. A senior CBP official telling me that while the scene has changed, the agency is not out of the woods yet. We've learned from nonprofit organizations all along the border that hundreds of migrants are being transported to those areas from Eagle Pass to decompress. We learned from Catholic Charities in the Rio Grande Valley that last week. Uh, officials were transporting about 350 migrants per day. And uh, Poppy and Phil, the organization there tells me that now they're receiving about 550 per day. That just gives you a Mm -hmm. sense of the number of migrants who
0: continue to pour into the U.S. southern border. Rosa
1: Flores, great reporting. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Rosa. Thanks for joining us tomorrow. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.